This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your tablet, smartphone, and desktop. Support the show and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow Standard Orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. Hi, sir. Is the word of Landru. Joy to you, friends, and thanks for joining us here in Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show to the original series. My name is Drew, or Landru, and this is my co-host Mike from Commentary Trek Stars. Hello. And once again, we're joined by Mark Cushman, author of These Are the Voyages, books one through five, we now know. <laughs> How do we know that? I don't know. <laughs> Did we talk about that? Uh, hi, Drew. Hi, Mike. How's it Mark going? It's going great. Thanks for joining us. We had rain this morning in California. It's amazing. It actually rained. And people are walking out and looking up in the sky trying to figure out what this thing is. Is, there, is everyone Water freaking out with, with, huh? the, with the driving and everything yeah. like that? Like driving like five miles an hour and oh, yeah. stuff? Yeah, yeah we, have, we, have, we have teenagers out here who've never seen rain before. So they're walking out <laughs> kind of like turkeys. And they let turkeys out of their pens and they walk out and they look up and they drown because rain gets into their noses because they, they've, they've never experienced rain. That's very, very strange. Meanwhile, I'm going to have to dig my car out of a pile of snow, so I have absolutely no sympathy <laughs> for you whatsoever. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so season three of Star Trek is the topic of your newest book which is these are the voyages book three um this is is really interesting but for for those people who may not know who maybe haven't heard the last episodes or or maybe not read your books can you just uh tell us what these are the voyages is a lot of pages um (laughs) these are the voyages well the first book is what 600 i think and the second one 650 and the third one 700 i keep getting longer longer winded no it it um I started this project back in the early 80s, uh, interviewed Gene Roddenberry for a uh, local TV special about Star Trek, and started, and, and just so much stuff was coming up that I thought, my God, I read the making of Star Trek, but I didn't know this, you never went into that. Uh, that, that book was written before the show was even finished, nobody ever discussed the third year, it's such a mystery. And uh, I said, this would make a great book. And his, his attitude was, well, I've written mine. You, you can do it. Uh, and he had all these files. He kept everything. He and Bob Justman kept every memo, every scrap of paper, every budget report and, and sensor report and everything else, except the ratings. I had to license those from A.C. Nielsen for each episode. And um, uh, so I took all this information, interviewed everybody I could get. But the real spine of the books is the memos which are just fascinating and, and very entertaining, especially Bob Justman's memos, and put them all together. And, um, and the idea was to do a book and explore every episode, not just the series as a whole, but get into each episode. What were you guys thinking with the alternative factor? What, what, how did you feel about Amok Time? How, you know, which ones did you think were great? Which ones weren't? What were you able to do? And what were you disappointed that you weren't able to do with each and every episode? Well, it's just too much to fit into a book. So it ended up being three books, one on each season. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, there will be a fourth book, which is going to cover the 1970s and the uh, early 80s. And then the fifth book will be the first year of Next Generation. And book four will be out next year for the 50th. 
And the Next Generation book will be out in 2017 for the 30th anniversary of the first year of Next Generation. So that's what these are. Excellent. So now this this book, book three, is obviously about season three. And uh, people who listen to our show know that uh, Drew and I don't exactly have the uh, the, the the best opinion uh, about season three. And I think that there's a lot of people who feel that way. What what what's your opinion on season three? You know, my opinion changed in the course of writing the book, and so I hope that other people's opinions will change in the course of reading it. But uh, I'm old enough that I was a kid watching Star Trek when it was on originally, and uh, and I wrote a letter in complaining when they were going to take it off after two years, claiming that the ratings weren't good, which we now know from the ratings reports that I got and included in these books wasn't completely true. Uh, the ratings weren't as high as the network wanted. Back then, they wanted you to have a 30% audience share to guarantee renewal. Well, guess what? Star Trek had a 32% audience share for the entire first season, and yet they were still hemming and hawing whether they would pick it up for a second. During his second year, it had a 28% audience share, averaged, and yet they tried to cancel it. It was their top-rated Friday night show. You know, and when it was on Thursday nights, its first year, it quite often won its time slot. So why were they trying to cancel it? Well, they, we find out in these books they were trying to cancel it because it was too political and too sexy, believe it or not. That was America's first look at the miniskirt. And those were shorter. Those were um, um, <laughs> micro miniskirts. And, and, uh, so, and, and back then you had the news division and the entertainment division, and they weren't supposed to cross. You weren't supposed to be making commentary on Vietnam or racism or sexism or religion in the entertainment shows. And yet Star Trek was doing that every week. And so the networks were having a problem. They didn't get along with Gene Roddenberry. He didn't get along with them. He wasn't very respectful to them because he didn't like their their uh, interference. And um, and so that that's why they were trying to take it off. Anyway, I wrote in a letter. The new season starts. And like a lot of other people, I interviewed Doug Drexler and a few others who were kids at that time watching it. And we all felt the same way. It's different. We couldn't really put our finger on it. It's still with Star Trek. It was still the same people. It, it was still the same ship. But something about it felt different. And we didn't like it as much. You know, we liked the action adventure. Well, in book three, you find out what's different and why it's different, why it happened. First of all, that was the year the FCC decided there's too much violence on television. They'd been making noise about it for a couple of years, but they finally decided to do something about it. And uh, they started saying, you know, take all this, this violence out of TV. Well, so you're taking a lot of the action out of the action adventure. That's why the third season episodes seem a little slower or not as exciting. The other thing was the budget got cut again. So, you know, each time, as, as somebody who's done some directing and so forth, you know, each time you do a new set, that's a lighting setup. That's time. That's money. So they started doing longer scenes in less rooms that changed the feel of the show and bob justman there's a memo in book three i believe or certainly in one of these books but i think book three where he says uh you know if we manage to survive and do a fourth year by that point each episode is going to be one long scene in the briefing room where they talk about what happened well watch <laughs> the lights of zetar yeah watch the lights of zetar from season three there's there's an entire act i think act three of that episode is in the briefing room it's interesting conversation they're having, interesting drama, but still it, it's not the movement that we remembered from the first two years. 
So these are the differences, but it, it's stuff that was out of their control. It's not that they lost their talent. It was totally out of their control. So you have less money. You have the FCC inter- interfering. Gene Roddenberry had his falling out with uh, NBC and, uh, and Paramount and walked uh, Fred Freiberger's in there thinking he's going to have Roddenberry to help him, and now he's on his own. And then Justman's burned out and fed up and leaves by the middle of the year. And so this guy, who didn't really have any experience with Star Trek, is trying to rewrite all the scripts and trying to keep this show feeling like Star Trek, but working with the tools he's been given, which are not tools enough. And so that's what happens during the third year. Now, analyzing the shows, watching those episodes again as an adult, after not watching them for for many years, uh, you know, I'm thinking, well, some of these are pretty good. And uh, so I've, I've reanalyzed the, the season, reassessed it. And yes, there's some real tragedies within the third year <laughs> and the children shall lead and the way to Eden and, and so forth. But there's also some incredibly profound and poignant episodes. You know, Is There in Truth No Beauty, The Empath, which, by the way, was Gene Roddenberry's favorite episode and DeForest Kelly's as well, The Empath was. Um, you know, Spectre of the Gun, which is so surreal, so odd. Uh, our yesterdays, the second time we see Spock fall in love, and it's it's really sad, you know that ending and uh, and the production value of that episode is actually quite good for that third year. So there there's some really good episodes within the third season. Uh, so if you, you can ignore the ones that don't work and look at the ones that do, you have at least half a half a good year there. Well, uh, specifically, like what what are some episodes where maybe uh, you know growing up or whatever you were like this is this is terrible you know but now looking at it you've come to appreciate it you know more through during doing the research on the book well is there in truth no beauty was one that i didn't particularly care for when i first saw it you know it's like oh it's kind of romantic and it's it's uh you know it's dealing with these two guest characters and and it just didn't grab me now i'm watching it again uh and i'm seeing that incredible Incredible scene on the bridge with uh, Spock and Leonard Nimoy's wonderful performance in that scene where he merges with Carlos and and he has the joy of, of looking at them and he's still Spock he's he's sharing the consciousness with Carlos and he's looking at him and he says I know you I know you are my friend and I know you Dr. McCoy <laughs> and then he goes through all this and then when it's time for him to separate and he's feeling sad and he looks at them and he says you know you depend so much on this thing called language and yet it's so insufficient for what you try to communicate you're all so alone in your bodies so tragically alone and i watched that and it's like man this is good um specter of the gun i always kind of liked it but it wasn't really didn't feel like star trek to me but uh, i gotta tell you susan osborne who was my editor on these books and i appreciated her input so much that I stuck her name on the cover, half the size of mine, of course. And uh, uh, she wasn't expecting that. But I I said, no, you need to have your name up there because your input was great. Well, her input was great because she liked Star Trek. She'd seen it as a kid and she'd seen a few episodes here and there, but she wasn't a Trekkie. She didn't know the series. And so I leaned on her a lot saying, look, I'm going to write all this stuff and you got to tell me what to take out. But also... Um, I want to know that this could be interesting even to somebody who isn't into Star Trek, that it could be interesting to watch how a TV show is made. So she was of great help in that regard. And I would screen episodes for her. And I remember when I showed her Spectre of the Gun, 
I'd already shown her most of the first and second season. And I show her that episode, and she says, this is my favorite one of every episode you've shown me. I really like this episode. The set design is so imaginative. The theme is so strong. Uh, there were just so many things that she liked about that episode that it actually kind of like watching kids on Christmas morning. You know, you kind of relive the excitement of Christmas through kids. I was able to appreciate the episode more sitting next to somebody who was really getting off on it. So that, that's another one. The empath uh, struck me as a little slow and, and, hey, we're not spending any time on the ship. You know, this is disappointing. Where's the Klingons? Where's the phasers? All this stuff, you know. But watching that, a whole story about uh, a character being tested to see if she can care for other living creatures enough to justify her existence. Isn't that something that we're all tested on in life? You know, and, and to, to show that in the way that they did and to see the, the how brave Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are that each of them is willing to give their lives for the others. And she notices this and you see her reaction watching them and how she's learning from them as we in the audience learned from them. They became heroes to us and they kind of showed us how we should be as adults and how we should be as friends and how we should be as members of society. And she's learning from them the same way we're learning from them. Well, you look at these episodes in that respect and you go, this is valuable. You know, th this is relevant and, and it deserves to have been made and it's, it's good that it was made. But we were spoiled by the first two years. So, you know, it's, it's a shame, you know, if, 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 uh, if I could have controlled how my son was being exposed to uh, Star Trek, I think I would have shown him the third season first. And he probably would have loved it. And then I could have showed him the, the first and second, and he would have loved it even more. But I wasn't able to control that because I didn't even know he was watching Star Trek. He saw the first J.J. Abrams movie when he was 16. And, and he comes into my office one day and he says, Dad, you know, they, they show Star Trek five nights a week out here. And I said, yeah, I know, 10 o'clock or whatever. And he says, well, I've been watching it. And, and, and uh, the show you're writing the books about, I've been watching it. And you know what? And I thought he was going to say something sarcastic, like, <laughs> you know, it seems silly or whatever. And he says, it's good. And I said, why is it good? He says, you know, every uh, they show it from 10 to 11. And when the episode ends, I kind of lie there in bed and, and I'm thinking about it. I said, do, you, do other shows make you think? And he says, not really. <laughs> so, oh, there you go. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, something that you were talking about, you know, wanting to, to make sure that the book worked for Trekkies and non-Trekkies alike. I mean, that's kind of the the thing to me, which is, is really fascinating about this, is not so much the Star Trek of it all, but the behind-the-scenes look at the making of a television show, because that's something which fascinates me and it really wouldn't matter whether it was star trek or you know i love lucy or whatever you know or some show that i i could not care less about just sort of like having this this uh this this peek behind the curtain that's what really makes this yeah. thing stand out yeah and i love lucy is a good example because that that was a very important show in the history of television it was the first show to uh, shoot comedy on film. It had all been done live before that and kinescope. And Desi Arnaz says, no, we're going to use three film cameras and shoot it the three camera technique in front of a studio audience. And then we'll edit it. And they said, you're crazy. That's going to cost too much money. And he said, it'll be worth it. This thing's going to rerun for decades. Oh, you're nuts. And, and it's still rerunning. Yeah. You know, and Star Trek, the same thing, Lucille Ball said, I need another I Love Lucy. I need a show that will rerun for at least 10 years. 
And, and so she put her money into Star Trek and her board of directors at Desilu said, don't do it. It's going to bankrupt the studio. It's too expensive. You can't do a half a science fiction movie every week on a TV budget. We're going to lose money on every episode we make. And she says, we'll make it back in reruns. And they said, we won't survive to make it back in reruns. Well, she was right. And they were right. <laughs> she was right. Here's a show that could rerun for at least 10 years coming up on 50. They were right that we can't afford to do it. We're too small of a studio and it bankrupted Desi Lou, and that's why uh, towards the end of the second season, she had to sell the studio to Paramount. And then Paramount came in and said, well, you're not going to do to us, Star Trek, what you did to Desi Lou, and they cut the budget severely. So, you know, it, it, uh, I Love Lucy was a very important show and a very interesting story uh, to read a book on. Uh, not all shows are, but Star Trek certainly is because it's an important show. First, first multiracial cast in TV. First, first show to really do science fiction on an adult level on television, uh, to talk about the themes that they were talking about, the subjects that network TV didn't want explored back in that day, uh, to be able to do all that. I mean, it was historic on so many levels. And it's interesting to get into those memos and see what they were thinking, because they were like Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, you know, Roddenberry and Kuhn and Justman and Fontana. Uh, they were taking a chance. Every time they put a piece of paper in their typewriter, they were taking a chance every time they stepped on the soundstage and we're going to do an interracial kiss between Shatner and Michelle Nichols. And you read that chapter in book three and how the NBC brass flew out and we're sitting there on the set saying, you can't actually kiss her. Just kiss her cheek. Don't kiss her lips. We'll lose the Southern affiliates. And all the things that were going on that, that you know, and in knowing that the network wanted to get rid of the show because this was just too big of a liability. And then seeing the ratings reports and finding out that the numbers were not that bad. So it really was politics and it really was personality clashes that killed Star Trek, not the ratings. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's fun to get in and explore all this. Spock's brain. Okay, we'll talk about one. Now, now that was the first one they showed for the third season. It was the fifth episode filmed and the first one uh, aired. And I had the same reaction as Bob Olson and Doug Drexler and other guys I've talked to who are my age who were watching it the night it premiered, and their quotes are in the book. And and they're people that are important because Doug went on to work in the industry and work on Star Trek and win Academy Awards and Emmys for working on Star Trek, doing the special effects. And Bob Olson was very involved in the Save Star Trek uh, campaigns that were going on. And And we all had the same reaction. We didn't know each other. We were in different rooms across the country, but we had the same reaction. We're, we're thinking, this isn't as good, and it seems a little silly. But even when Star Trek stumbled, like Spock's brain, they had a point and a purpose. And with that one, as we find out in that chapter in Book 3, uh, the first heart transplant had just taken place a few weeks before. And uh, uh, Gene Roddenberry and Gene Coon were in the office together, and they, they were looking at the news and all the people protesting and marching and saying, man doesn't have the right to play God and all this. And they said, we've got to do something with this. But heart transplants are going to be old news by the time Star Trek Century comes along. What can we transplant that would be interesting? And they thought a brain. And they came up with an interesting reason to transplant a brain, that if we don't use our brains, we lose our, our ability to use them. And the society has been relying on computers to do everything, and so they don't think anymore, and they start becoming simpletons. So they need to find an intellect, a pure brain, that can, can run their, their systems. 
So it's all very interesting science fiction concepts, but unfortunately, it's a little hokey too, and and that's one that didn't quite work for that reason. But you at least got to respect them for what they were trying to do and the statement they were trying to make, and they always had that in every episode of Star Trek. Yeah, you know, um, like there's Spock's brain more than probably any episode is just sort of like the episode that people are just like, oh, look at that, it's funny, it's goofy, it's campy, it's terrible. And, you know, just sort of like uh, all the, everyone's always using that as the example of like the worst of Star Trek. But, you know, like just listening to you talk about it now, it's like that what you're saying there makes it sound like it's going to be the best episode ever. You know, it's doing everything yeah, yeah. that Star Trek is supposed to do. And, you know, yeah. the the cool thing about this book is showing wh- why it works or why it doesn't. You know, what what happened to, to make it the way that that it is now right and you find and you find out that they thought on that level too and you read these memos that are going back and forth between the creative staff and the and the network and they're thinking about these things too they're thinking about well this is a really interesting concept but how do we end it in a in a believable and satisfactory way i mean how do you put the brain back in and and so they're having the same conversations we're having and 90 percent of the time they came up with the right solutions. 10% of the time they didn't. But remember, they had to do an episode every week. You know, they were supposed to shoot these in six days. Uh, a lot of them took seven. A couple took eight. But, uh, but you know, the goal was always to shoot it in six days, and they had to crank out a new script every week. So you're sitting there, and it's, okay, they're, they're going to start filming this one this morning, and we don't have the great ending. We're not quite sure how to pull everything back together for the ending come on, come up with something. <laughs> and, and 90% of the time they would. And sometimes they, they would, you'd see a memo and say, well, this is the best I can do, you know? And uh, we got to film it today. We can't put it off anymore. This is the way it's going to go. And this one just isn't going to be one of our better episodes. We'll bury it towards the end of the season. Well, then NBC says, and says, no, 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 we can promote that idea. We're going to launch the season with it. <laughs> and by the way, they were right. Uh, Spock's brain, look at the rating report in there. It, it, it won its time slot. You know, poor Star Trek can't win in the ratings. So folklore has told us because that's what NBC told us because they had to justify to their stockholders why they were trying to cancel the show. It blasted the competition away. C- uh, CBS opened with the two hour, uh, premiere of Hawaii Five-0, a made for TV movie that was going to launch Hawaii Five-0 and Star Trek beat it. And they beat Judd for the defense on ABC, which was winning Emmys as the best dramatic show on television. And Spock's brain blew them away. Uh, but so the ratings were there. But unfortunately, we saw and said, oh, this one's not as good. Hopefully next week will be better. <laughs> you know? yeah. And yeah. next week was the Enterprise incident, which wasn't bad. Yeah, that's that's my favorite thing about the book is or about the whole series is learning that a lot of the the issues that we have with the original series with with the writing and the the kind of repetitive plots they saw they 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 knew that they you know Kirk had talked five computers to death already and we probably shouldn't do that again yeah 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 you see a memo from Dorothy Fontana about that you know she's counting them to Gene Roddenberry she says well he did this in Return of the Archons and we did it again in the Change Lane and we did it in Mud's Women or not Mud's Women I Mud to a certain degree, where he kind of outsmarts the computer. Are we really going to do it again? 
let's try to think of something else. And they would try and they would say, you know, but it just isn't going to be the great big ending we need. And, and so we'll do it a little differently. We'll have them use a different approach with this computer in Ultimate Computer. We'll, we'll have him really connect with the computer and touch, and he'll come up with the idea that, well, if, if uh, this, this scientist's uh, uh, personality has been ingrained in the computer, the scientist is mad. So the computer's mad, but the scientist also has a sense of, of humanity in him. So maybe the computer has a sense of humanity, and if I can touch on that, if I can get it to think in those terms that it has murdered people, and what is the crime for murder, maybe I can get it to punish itself and disconnect. Well, we hadn't done it that way in Return of the Archons. We hadn't done it that way in the Changeling. So uh, in Changeling, he just he showed uh, Nomad that his thinking was flawed because Nomad said imperfect creations have to be sterilized. And he said, well, you're imperfect. So, so don't do double standards here. Sterilize yourself. Well, Ultimate Computer, it was more along the line of, of uh, you've committed a crime. You, you need to be punished. So they said, this is valid. Okay, on one hand, we're kind of using the same idea, but we're twisting it in a different direction, and we're making a statement that is completely different than the statement we made in the other episode. And that makes it valid. And so we need to go forward, and there will be comparisons, but, but we can't make this statement if we don't go forward in this way. And that was really important to them. You know, Gene Roddenberry, I said this before, uh, you know, that, that he was the only producer I ever pitched to who asked me what the theme of the story was. Most producers just say, you know, what's the big ending? Or, you know, how, what, what's the action going to be? You know, he would say, what's the point? What's the message of this episode? And how is it different than the message of other episodes? Now, you see in the memos from Gene Kuhn that Kuhn was not worried about the fact that we've used this plot device before. What he cared about was we haven't we haven't made this statement before. So he was a lot like Roddenberry in that sense too. But you also see memos from Roddenberry and Fontana where they're kind of counting on their fingers. Well, Gene Kuhn has done this before. <laughs> He's done that before. I mean, Arena is really Spectre of the Gun if you think about it. You know, it's a, a an advanced society saying you men are are uh, violent and we don't want to have anything to do with you. And then Kirk proves to them that we we have validity to us and we're capable of surprising them so okay we'll do it again but gene you got to do it a little differently one of the wonderful things that didn't get into specter of the gun that was in the uh his early draft scripts was the reason the uh Malkotians, i believe that's what they were right Malkotians, um uh the reason they didn't want to have anything to do with man is they had just started receiving television signals from earth that had been transmitted 200 years earlier and so they were seeing all the violence of 1950s and 1960s TV, all the Westerns, where literally we killed the population of the Earth like three times over on American TV. And they were thinking, well, we can't have anything to do with these people. And that was the reason why they didn't – they were look, treating us like we were disease because they have been watching our form of entertainment. Well, NBC made them take that out. As NBC said, we can't put that. We're having trouble with the FCC this year about violence. We can't put a theme in this story where alien races are making commentary on violence on television. You've got to take that out of the script. But it's interesting seeing that the ideas that they had. Some of them had to go away. Some of them stayed. But they did. Here's, here's one of my favorite stories about that. 
uh, it's in book one, uh, Dagger of the Mind. In the script, they had they had uh, Spock and McCoy hypnotizing Simon Van Gelder, so he could they could access the part of his mind that had been locked away. And the memos from NBC says, no, you can't do that. We have a rule here that you can't hypnotize people on TV because you might hypnotize people in the viewing audience. They really worried about that, you know. And so you got you can't be waving a, a watch in front of his face or whatever it is you're using a crystal to hypnotize him. And they were filming that scene the next day. And so Roddenberry's thinking, well, what am I going to do? I can't take the scene out. That scene's essential. And so what can I do to get by the, the NBC censors? And he came up with the mind meld. Hmm. Well, we're not going to hypnotize the audience by having Spock do a mind meld on Simon Van Gelder. So that's where the mind meld came from. That's a brilliant writer in, in a, a 12th hour of a deadline coming up with a brilliant solution. But every now and then you'll have the ending of Spock's brain and it's not as brilliant. Well, you can't, you can't hit a home run every time. No, no, that's for sure. But um, in in doing the research for the book, uh, are there any episodes where you know you were you were not a big fan of them at all or whatever? But mm -hmm. then when you started looking at it, you you saw what they maybe had planned and then had to alter for whatever reason. Where you were like, oh man, if they would have just been able to do that thing, this would have been a classic. Yeah. Well, alternate factor is, is one. I mean, that was going to be television's first interracial kiss, which Star Trek ended up doing two years later with the Plato's stepchildren. Um, Lazarus was, was going to have an affair with Lieutenant Masters, which is why if you're watching that episode, and you're thinking, who is she? Why is she in this episode? She comes out of nowhere. They don't really utilize her properly. Where's Scotty? What's the point? Well, the point was is that he couldn't have had an affair with Scotty, so they had to create a female character that he can try to seduce and get the dilithium crystals from. And that was a big part of the episode was the love affair between them. And the fact that he actually falls in love with her too. He's trying to use her, but he falls in love with her. And then he sacrifices his life to save her and save the ship, which saves humanity and everything else. He's willing to go into the chamber and fight his anti-self for all eternity because he's fallen in love with this woman who he was just trying to use Okay, so great story. Well, they cast Janet McLaughlin. Sounds like an Irish girl. She hadn't done a lot of TV. She was pretty big on the stage. NBC didn't know who she was. And they cast uh, uh, John Drew uh, Barrymore, big star at that time, Drew Barrymore's dad. And uh, they're, we're going to get a lot of publicity on this. And the day they start filming, NBC finds out that Janet McLaughlin is black. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. You can't do that. I mean, yeah, we're a very uh, open-minded network. We just launched I Spy. We have Robert Cope and Bill Cosby sharing motel rooms around the world. You know, nobody's seen that before. But this, but they're not kissing. <laughs> <laughs> and so they said, you got to take that out or get rid of the girl, replace the actress. And Jane Coon said, no, I, you know, she's here. She's in makeup. I'm not going to go and fire her because she's black. I can't do that. So I'm going to have to take the love scene out of the uh, the episode. Well, that was the whole point of the episode. That was the scene that motivated Lazarus to make the sacrifice that he made. And so by taking that out, the episode fell flat. Now John Drew Barrymore is in his makeup chair reading the new pages. And he says, this isn't what I agreed to do. I'm a big star. I can't do this. This isn't any good. And so he he walks. And doesn't even tell them he's walking. They're waiting for him to come back to the studio, and he doesn't come back. They're calling him. 
the calling his agent, can't reach him. So finally, it's the end of the day, end of the first day of shooting. They've been shooting around him, and uh, they don't know what to do. And Shatner says, well, you know, I did a pilot a couple years ago with Robert Brown, damn good actor. And uh, it's his birthday today, so I know he's not working. How about I call him and see if he'll come down to the studio? And he did. And Robert Brown shows up. He hasn't even seen Star Trek. It had just premiered a couple episodes. He hadn't seen it yet. And he walks into Desi Lu, and Gene Roddenberry puts his arm around him and hands him a script and starts walking him towards makeup and says, here's the script. I'm going to put you in makeup. We're going to, we're going to put on this beard that we did for uh, John Drew Barrymore and blah, blah, blah. I said, wait a minute. What do you mean? I just came in to meet with you. I, I haven't agreed to do it yet. And he's, well, we need you. I'll pay you whatever you want. I'll pay you as much as we pay Shatner, but don't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> and we got a motel for you across the street because we know you live way out in Malibu. And you can stay there in the motel because you're going to be working 14 hours a day for the next six days trying to catch up and everything else. And so this episode is like a domino effect of just falling apart as they're filming it. They knew it. You read the memos and they're saying, do we have to air this? It didn't work. Yeah. And does it lose saying, no, you've got to air it. We spent a million dollars on it. They spent uh, about 200,000, which translate today to about 1.2 million. And they said, we, we've got to air it. We've got to get our money back, or at least part of our money back from NBC. So they pushed it back to the end of the first season. It was going to be the last episode to air. And so it wouldn't cause any damage, hopefully. And uh, the City on the Edge of Forever was late in being delivered. So it ended. It moved up a couple of slots in the schedule. But it was a mid-season episode that got pushed back to the end. And they never repeated it because they, they knew. And then you see memos in um, book two as they're doing uh, Mirror Mirror. And Bob Justman writes a memo and he says, uh, well, this story is about an alternate universe. Uh, you may recall, we did an episode last year called The Alternative Factor. If that isn't sending chills down your spine, do we really want to go another episode like this? <laughs> <laughs> so they're aware of the fact that it didn't work and they're, they're talking about it in their memos. So if we ever watch that episode and you're wondering what were they thinking, you now get to know what they were thinking. And you get to know that they never took a day off. They approached every episode with 100%. But sometimes when you're cranking out an episode every week, there's things out of your control. You just can't, you can't help it. You can't save it. So we have to ask about um, Fred Freiberger because he's the guy who, well, basically ran season three, right? Yeah, and yeah. and uh, probably because of that, because his name is on the, the episodes, there are a lot of people through the years who have blamed him for the cancellation of Star Trek. And in your book, um, you make it rather clear that there were numerous lurking variables there and and it it wasn't all his fault by any stretch of the imagination yeah poor freddie uh, you know there's a couple memos in there from him uh in an interview he did with the la times at that time while the seasons was was in production and you feel so deeply for him because he came in uh Roddenberry wanted him to come in halfway through season one because Roddenberry was burned out. He knew he needed to bring in somebody to help. John D.F. Black was quitting because he was tired of it all, too, working until 2 a.m. in the morning and having to be back in the studio at 8 o'clock the next morning and writing five different scripts a day and, and so on. So Roddenberry uh, had rewritten, along with John, those first 16 episodes, 70% dialogue rewrites on almost every one of them because nobody knew how these characters were supposed to sound 
all these freelance writers hadn't even seen any episodes. They'd seen the first pilot, which didn't even have McCoy in it. How do you write for these characters you haven't seen? So Gene, mostly, but with John as well, were rewriting all these scripts. And Gene was burned out, so he called Freddie. And Freddie wasn't available to start that week. He said, oh, I can come in in about four weeks. And Gene, no, I need somebody right now. So he got Gene Kuhn, which was wonderful for us. What a talented guy and all the things Gene Kuhn brought to that show. Well, come third year, and, and you find out in book two why Gene Kuhn left, which nobody knew, but I found out, and it's all in there. Um, so season three comes along, and he brings in Freddie, who had won it all along, because Fred had produced the first year of uh, Wild Wild West. And Gene Roddenberry was very impressed with that show, that they did a Western that was a spy show that was a science fiction and merged all these elements together that seemingly wouldn't merge together and made an entertaining show out of it, an imaginative show. And uh, so he brought in Freddie. But unfortunately, Gene was trying to control Fred. Gene gave out the first 16 assignments, as you find out in the book. And so Fred's producing episodes that he didn't even assign. And then suddenly Gene has his falling out with NBC and walks away. So Fred doesn't even have Gene there to help him. And uh, there's a lot of memos from Gene Roddenberry in the first part of book three. He was pretty involved with those first bunch of episodes, but then you see less and less memos from him as he's kind of disassociated himself from Star Trek because of his situation with Paramount and, and NBC. So now Freddie's trying to run this show by himself with Fred, with Bob Justman leaving as, as well. And he's rewriting all the scripts, him and Art Singer. Just a massive amount of work and uh, no money. And everybody's tired, and the FCC's meddling. Uh, so a lot of things are going wrong, and there's not a lot he can do about it. He made some mistakes. He may not have been the ideal person to take over, but nobody else was available. And really, he did a pretty amazing job when you look at it. With When you look at what he had to work with and the restrictions he was under and the situation, uh, and then you look and see some very good episodes within season three, a lot of credit should go there, and he's never gotten any. But, yeah, there's this one interview uh, that he gave to the L.A. Times. It's in book three. While he's waiting for the renewal to come in for the second half of the third year, and he says, you know, we're shooting episode 16 this week, and we don't even know that there's going to be an episode 17. The network won't tell us. And yet the studio's saying if there is an episode 17, we have to start shooting it Monday morning. So I'm rewriting a script, and we're getting everything ready in case we get the go-ahead that we don't know if we're going to get or not. And he said, this is cruel. It is cruel behavior, the way the networks treat producers and treat shows. It is is just unacceptable. And and uh, you, you can feel what this poor man is going through, trying to keep this show going. Now, if there hadn't been a third year, there wouldn't have been enough episodes for it to go into syndication. And and look at some of those episodes he did, you know, Tholian Webb and All Our Yesterdays and so forth, and Requiem for Methuselah. You know, it's slow. It had to be at that point. But, uh, you know, with the FCC and all, and the budget, no money. But uh, very interesting science fiction concept of meeting an immortal man who was Galileo and Leonardo da Vinci and all these characters. And the sadness that we feel for that character, that he kept living, but the women he would marry would grow old and die. 
and he had to then move and change his identity or people would notice that he wasn't aging. And finally, he went off into space and became a hermit. And in leaving Earth and the environment of Earth, he's given up his immortality. But he's trying to create a companion because he's lonely, but he needs Kirk to instill passion into the companion. And in doing so, the companion falls in love with Kirk, and in them trying to force it to make a choice between them, it self-destructs because it doesn't want to hurt either one of them. And then both of them have to live with the sadness of what they've done, that they destroyed this this uh, life form that they both loved. An amazing story. And, and that's what I hope book three does, is that you'll look at it and say, okay, it doesn't have all the window dressing of season one and two. It doesn't have the pacing or the action or the money. Uh, Gene Roddenberry's not there to wave his magic wand over the script and give it those little bits of magic that he would put into them. But still, there's a very poignant and interesting story here. Worth watching, worth worth remembering, as Spock tells Kirk in the end. Not remember, he says forget, but we'll never forget that scene. Hey guys, it's Landrew. Wanted to let you know that there's some more Mark Cushman interview on the way next week, but for now, we'll take a break. You can find the These Are the Voyages books at www.thesearethevoyagesbooks.com. But Mark Cushman isn't the only person we talked to or about this week, so here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. It's not an overstatement, and you had said in your introduction that without without him and his hand guiding all of this, then, then it's unlikely that two would have been what it was, and if it had not been successful, then it, it, you know, it probably would have meant the end of Star Trek at that point. Earl Grey. Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martaban to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Curzon is involved with the Kittimer yep. Accords. Spock is at Kittimer when those are being talked about, so you would think they would have run into each other They probably least. hung out in the bar together. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out! The Ready Room. The movie series would not have relaunched and and become what it was if not for the amazing bounce of the Rathacon. The Rathacon was to Star Trek the same thing that uh, the best of both worlds was to Next Generation. Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary treks. Well, I've always liked the, uh, I like that episode for, I mean, it's one of the most derided of the of the original series episodes, but yet I always, it has a place in my heart for some reason. I've always enjoyed watching mm-hmm. it over. So um, I wanted to do something with those guys, the Scalbians. The 602 Club. Like, I, I could kind of dismiss droids in distress and fight or flight and everything like that and i was just kind of watching the background but all of a sudden i started catching myself like stopping working and just focusing on watching and uh, and so it just got better and better and better and i think i was hooked by episode four breaking ranks that's when i was like okay 
I like this show. This is good. Warp 5. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, or you can stream just from the website. You can go to Trek.fm slash podcast, get all the links. If you want to contact us, talk about Mark Cushman or Season 3, you can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose Send a Show. Choose Standard Orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the tab on the left-hand column of any page to send us a voicemail using your webcam's microphone. And you can talk to us and our other listeners at our Facebook group, The Babel Conference. In social media, you'll find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash trek.fm and on Twitter under trek.fm. You can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E, and you can find Mike at Mumbles3K. You can also find Mike on Commentary Trek Stars here on the network, where they talk about the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek, or you can find him on CommentaryTrackStars.com. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring Standard Orbit to you each week, and our sponsor for the show is Audible.com. Audible's a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible's the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books, Audible has something for everyone. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today, catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read, and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trek.fm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trek.fm, and we thank Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek.fm. We'd also like to thank Richard Rutledge Jr. for being our associate producer. You can find him on Twitter at RUT8972, and we really appreciate him supporting us on Patreon. And there's another way you can keep us in orbit, and that's by also supporting us on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash trek.fm, you'll find a list of donation levels where you can get things like exclusive digital goodies, early access to episodes, access to our project manager, and even be listed as an associate producer for our shows. You'll find out where the donations can go, things like covering the monthly hosting costs, hiring an editor for our shows, and upgrading our equipment. Again, that's patreon.com slash trek.fm, so check it out. As I said earlier, Mark will be back next week. We've got one last question that lasts the entire length of an episode, so we figured we'd save that for next week. So stay tuned for that, and thanks for listening this week. Have a good week, and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landry. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead, walk factor one. Hi, sir.